0: episode of Order from Ashes is part of Shia Power Comes of Age, the transformation of Islamist politics in Iraq. In the first episode in this short mini-series, I spoke with Sajad Jihad about the nature of that radical transformation of Shia Islamist politics after the U.S. invasion in 2003 and what the significance of that transformation has been for politics in Iraq uh, and more widely. In the second episode, I spoke with Marcin shamari about the question of whether clerics have seen their authority diminish as they've been able to play a more direct and influential role in politics. In the third episode, I spoke with Taif al khudari about protest politics in Iraq and the challenge that they have mounted to sectarian, uh, sect-based political movements. Today, in the fourth and final episode in this mini-series of uh, Shia power comes of age. I'm speaking with Ali Al-Maulawi about the uncomfortable coexistence of sectarianism and prejudice with the ascent of Shia Islamist factions to the central role of power in Iraq. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast. Today, I'm talking with Ali Al-Maulawi as part of our Shia politics series. He wrote a report called "Iraqi Shia factions are supposedly anti-state, but state power is what they want." Uh, Ali, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: So you wrote this report that uh, that is is in some ways about a common slur levied against uh, 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 Shia Islamist factions in, in Iraq, and and your argument about how we should think about this differently start us off by telling us what what is this uh, what is this label anti-state uh, and and how is it deployed and weaponized in Iraqi politics?
1: Sure. so I mean, in arabic, the the term that is used is la-dawla, which um you know can be translated as anti-state. Uh, another way of uh, translating it is um sort of in common Western academia, you would call it a failed state. So it really refers to the absence of a state, the absence of a functioning state and um the term kind of took on um you know uh it, it basically became quite common in terms of its usage during the 2019 uh tishreen protests um, and then it actually developed into a, a way to describe actors who are perpetuating a failed state and they call them al-quwa al dawla um the forces of the anti-state
0: so this so this label uh is relatively New in post uh, post two thousand uh, and three Iraqi politics. This isn't this isn't a label that was uh, uh, used in in previous power struggles uh, between between Shia factions.
1: Not really, no. I mean, there were some references to um, the anti state prior to two thousand and nineteen, but it really became quite popularized uh, once the Tishreen protests uh, kicked off.
0: So, and this is like complementary to, but a little different from the. Affirmative uh, cry of the protests, which was uh, uh, Nurid al-Watan, we want a state. Uh, so this is like the 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 flip side of it, which is to describe these uh, these sort of mainstream status quo actors as being you know forces for a vacuum, uh, forces to that are trying to to undermine state authority.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the criticism that was levied by the protesters was that, you know, the ruling elite, and, and specifically, I would argue the, the Shia elite, the Shia Islamist elite, were undermining the state, that they were, um, you know, somehow not committed to the state, not committed to, you know, the pres- preservation of the state. Um, and that's really, I think, the, the thinking behind using that, that label against, um, you know, the political elite.
0: So as we go forward, we're gonna we're gonna get into some of your your uh, really interesting analysis on uh, why this matters and and how we should think about it differently. Uh, but first, I want to really lo- locate this discourse in uh, uh, recent Iraqi history because I think part of why this is important uh, is because there has been a long running uh, current of you know essentializing uh, Shia. Iraqis as somehow being fifth columnists or not truly patriotic or not really Iraqi. Uh so talk to us a little bit about how far back this goes and and this sort of uh idea which I I, I think became common at least uh as far back as the Iran-Iraq War of uh of the nineteen eighties, of uh of of uh, you know, during during which Saddam's government often tried to paint Shia Iraqis as uh, somehow Iranian or foreign or 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 not loyal?
1: Yeah, so th- these sort of anti-Shia tropes have been around all the way back since the founding of uh, of modern Iraq. And there are you know numerous references to um you know suggestions that the, the Shia of Iraq are not um they're not even Arab, then they're, they're Persians, their loyalties lie outside of Iraq, um they're not committed to to the, the country. And, you know, you see this, um, you know, going far, as far back as the, the monarchy period, but it really kind of was heightened uh, during the Ba'ath period. And um, it, it really com- culminated in what happened with the um, deportation of, of Shia Iraqis uh, to Iran. They were labeled as taba'iyah, uh, people that have Persian roots that were considered not even Iraqi, even then they were born in Iraq. Their parents were born in Iraq, lived in Iraq their whole lives. And they were basically, um, you know, deported to to Iran, with the suggestion that you know their loyalties are actually with Ir- Iran. They're not even Iraqis. And these sort of tropes, these accusations, they've always really existed. And my my concern is that you know we need to really learn from history. We need to be very weary of anti-Shia tropes, even you know in, in the post two thousand and three period.
0: So in the, uh, uh, in the recent, uh, incarnation, uh, so we're talking about the sort of post 2019 series of crises, uh, you know, one, one government, uh, was over overthrown. One government, uh, uh, had to resign because of the protests. Uh, the next government was fairly hobbled. And this latest government was, was formed in the, in the wake of yet another series of, of, of protests uh, in in this whole period, uh, there's been a lot of concern about fragmentation of state power, about uh, whether um, you know whether the state is capable of of controlling Iraq, and whether uh, Iraq's weakness is the result of some kind of foreign conspiracy, right? So, um, how does all this? Uh, how does all this feed into a discourse, a political discourse, in which uh, La Daula, uh, the the anti-state, uh, becomes a problematic label uh, in your in your view uh, for talking about these dominant Shia Islamist factions?
1: so so one of the key areas of of discourse in the post 2003 period is the role of external actors you know and um one of them are the neighboring countries be that iran or the gulf or, or or others and so you know that there has been a lot of attention focused on you know iran's role in iraq its influence over the country and um and so i would say that the la dola term um, became very much associated with uh, Shia Islamist groups that are considered to be uh, closely aligned to Iran, and and my sort of issue with this um, approach is, you know, number one, what it does is it suggests that these groups are are not loyal to to Iraq, that they're you know subordinate to an external power, and. I think that the real picture is much more complicated, and it really has to do with you know issues to do with identity, the fact that you know individuals and groups can have multiple layers of identities, but essentially, I think what the point that I was really making was that all of these groups, whether you agree with them or not, whether you um, take major issues with their political ideologies, with their role in politics with you know their post two thousand and three role in 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 power sharing and in running the state you know, at the end of the day, they're all Iraqis. They're not Iranians. They, you know, they, they may see themselves as strategically aligned to Iran, but that's very different to calling them Iranians. And I think that f- for me, my, my issue is that if you want to have, uh, you know, a constructive discourse about the role of Shia Islamists in Iraq, then it needs to be done in a much more, um, shall we say, constructive way. Um, and using, you know, these sort of, labels, um, forces of the anti-state, it doesn't really raise the level of debate. Um, all it does is it kind of, um, you know, puts people against each other. It it, it it creates divisions between people within society, and it doesn't really lead to anything. And at the end of the day, these groups aren't going anywhere. They're, they're Iraqis. They have their, you know, deep roots within Iraqi society. And I think we just need to have a much better quality of debate over the role of these groups in Iraq
0: well, so one 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 question I have is you know who who really is using this kind of concept I mean is it other establishment uh Shi uh, Islamist parties that have their own militias that are using it against uh their own rivals is it uh uh fringe groups that have little power but have some kind of intellectual capital like what like so in other words what's where is this uh where does this discourse where do these labels live uh in in Iraqi uh political uh, uh discourse and culture these days
1: i mean they live everywhere really and in terms of the tishreen protests the, a lot of the protesters were using that those labels against um, these groups but then you know even um during the 2021 elections during the campaign there were, there were shi'a um you, you know groups, parties that were also using uh, these labels against their rivals. Um, and so it's almost become normalized to, to you know, to use this term. Um, it's, I mean, you know, I don't want to put too much emphasis on the term in the sense that it, you don't hear it all the time. It's not that you, you're constantly being bombarded with this term. But for me, it's an illustration of the, the nature of the discourse in Iraq, which really needs to be corrected.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the the the, the counter argument here is that uh is that is that this discourse is not the problem. The problem is the the terrible behavior and the bad actions of these armed groups that are, you know, mafia, uh mafia cartels with their own uh militaries uh that that Sort of operate under the under the banner of supposedly being Shia Islamist factions, but but in in reality they are you know uh, violent interest groups that uh, aren't really uh, concerned with representing anybody, uh, whether they're 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 supposed uh, you know Shia Islamist constituents or or any other uh, swath of the Iraqi public. So you know I I, I do wonder like. Um, you know, is the problem the discourse, or is the problem the abuse of uh, uh, the the abuse in practice by all these factions? And you know, when I when I look at your uh, your sort of analysis of, of of the space, one of the things I'm struck by is that uh, that really this this label uh, either has been or can be applied to literally every single one. Of the major status quo factions, right? So, uh, not just not just the ones that are perceived as being close to Iran, but literally all of the uh, powerful Shia Islamist factions, um, you know, could could quite uh, I think uh, uh, plausibly be described as acting to undermine uh, the the operation and function of state institutions, not not as uh, uh, foreign agents, but simply as self interested uh, self interested agents.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a completely reasonable point to make. And I, I do say in the paper that I, that I think that if the term was used to identify practices that were un- undermining the state, then sure, I wouldn't have a problem with the use of this term. But the problem with, with it is that it's used exclusively against um, you know Shia Islamist groups. And what that does is that it kind of labels not just Shia Islamists, but I, in my view, I think Shias more broadly um with this label of you know not being committed to the state um having their loyalties lie outside and i always think back to history and you know these tropes that we initially talked about you know um the danger is with this discourse is that it perpetuates these these tropes these anti-shia tropes and then you have you know shias who are not even islamists who are maybe just religious but aren't even politically active who who also get labeled and tarnished with with these terms but i i completely take the point i mean i think it's it's perfectly legitimate to take a look at these groups and and break down exactly what what is it they're doing what kind of behaviors are they engaging in that are uh, completely self interested that have nothing to do with um, preserving you know iraq's interests that um are actually damaging iraq's reputation um both you know domestically and abroad and and this is a perfectly reasonable discourse to have
0: i think that's a that's a really important point and uh and i guess i'd i'd underscore uh Historically, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of sectarianism in the region and in Iraq that sort of masquerades as not being sectarian, right? So you know, pre 2003, there was a a veneer that the you know that the that the regime was somehow not a sectarian regime, even though it was a, a you know a not just a Sunni regime, a Sunni inflected regime, but one that was was oriented around one particular clan and family. But there, anyway, we don't need to get lost in the weeds. Uh, but you know it's certainly my, my contention that a lot of sectarianism, in particular anti-shia uh, sectarianism by, uh, by Sunnis, has been carefully phrased so that you know in a sort of legalistic sense, uh, uh, it's, it's practitioners can claim that they're not being sectarian, right? That they're being nationalist, they're being secular and they're being somehow unfairly painted as sectarian. Uh, so I, I see this, um, phenomenon you're talking about, and I think it's hard to parse out, uh, but I see it as being part of that tradition, uh, because, you know, in theory, uh, uh, criticizing, uh, militia factions for being anti-state is is you know completely unremarkable in a context where the state is in in shambles. But in in actual practice, if that term and that language is only being deployed against Shia Islamists, uh, where we can see every other political grouping doing the same thing, Kurds, Sunnis, others, um, and they're not being uh, described that way, then it becomes yet another iteration of this kind of. Uh, subtly uh mobilized sectarianism where you know those those who are attuned to it know exactly what's intended uh but you know in a in a court of uh court of law or in a in a debating society uh you know the people who are lobbying the, the, this kind of language around could could uh claim um uh maybe uh dishonestly that, that that they didn't have any sectarian intent is that is that is that a fair uh is that a fair? Sort of take on on what's going on here
1: absolutely i mean this is exactly what i'm trying to get at i mean you know bigotry often comes in in very subtle forms um whether that's you know anti-semitism or racism or you know sectarianism it's often uh, manifested in in very um, subtle forms in in the form of dog whistles and this really is essentially what i'm concerned about is that the language that is used in discourse to critique shia islamists um, is, is, is highly problematic. And and the La Daula term is just one of many that I would suggest is, is problematic. All
0: right, we'll be right back after a short break. I'm Thanasi Kambanas, and I'm speaking with Ali Maulawi. You're listening to the Order from Ashes podcast from Century International. And you can find Ali's report uh, as part of our Shia politics project on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. And the report is titled Iraqi Shia factions are supposedly anti state, but state power is what they want. We'll be right back.
1: Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy.
0: Welcome back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm speaking with Ali Maulawi on the Order from Ashes podcast. We're talking about uh, uh, a sort of slur or characterization of of being fifth columnist and anti-state uh, or dawla in Arabic is the term uh, that's been uh, recently weaponized in Iraqi politics uh, and uh, Ali Maulawi has written a study of this as part of our Shia politics uh, project before the break Ali you were talking about um sort of uh, uh problematic uh, uh, bigotry and sectarianism in play and I just wanted to to follow up on that a little uh before we uh before we uh, broaden out to the to your sort of view of the antagonistic visions of politics in Iraq uh tell tell me cuz cuz i think this is this is often overlooked right because the Shia Islamist factions are dominant in Iraq they control the government they're the main holders of power uh tell us uh in in, in your view how dis, dis, sort of despite uh nearly 20 years of power uh, this political space still contends with prejudice or, or, or sectarianism despite its uh, sort of arrival at the center of power?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I would say that, um, you know, while Shia Islamists have, have dominated the political uh, space, they haven't necessarily, um, uh, you know, entirely dominated it. I mean, y- yes, they're a demographic majority of the Shia. Um, they've held, you know, the highest... Um, uh, uh, Positions in, in 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 the state since 2003, but also I mean there are multiple other non-Shia factions that have also um, held positions of influence, and so you know it's 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 not. I don't like to use the, the term Shia rule because Shia rule suggests that it's only Shias that, are, that that are running the country, and that in Iraq um, is certainly not the case. And. You know, you just have to look at the way that government is run, not just its composition, but the way that it functions, you can clearly see, I mean, it actually doesn't function very well, but, you know, the the way that the the state is run, you can see that um, there is, uh, you know, this power sharing mechanism whereby, um, you know, people from from other uh, ethnic and sectarian backgrounds are also... Um, involved in running the state, and so I think you know there's lots of there's lots of aspects of this to look at in terms of why sectarianism has persisted over the years. <clears throat> but what I would say is that I think that there is some sort of an equilibrium that exists between Iraq's various ethno sectarian components um, at the heart of power, and that in in many ways is why I think that it's um, it's it's not accurate to characterize Iraq as, as being Ruled by the Shia.
0: What this what this suggests is that there is actually a, a sort of tension between Shia preeminence in this messy pluralistic system that's emerged in Iraq and a a persistent sectarian uh, bigotry and bias against all the major groups in Iraq and and prominently today against the Shia because they're they are the uh, as the sort of main uh stakeholder of power they're they're therefore going to be uh, a, an important recipient of of sectarian characterizations and I do think it's important when we when we think and talk about this I mean we're we're part of a Shia politics working group that's focused on the evolution of Shia Islamist politics in Iraq but but these don't evolve in a contact in a in in a vacuum. They're evolving in a context where all the nation's politics are uh are rooted in ethno-sectarian identity groups, right? So Shia Islamist politics is playing out alongside Kurdish politics and Sunni Islamist politics. And uh to, to my knowledge, not really any, there's not any major uh, uh, trans identity group, nationalist political block that is that has evolved alongside these these other these other um, uh, factions. So, you know, none of this is on its own, right? It's happening in dialectic with uh, other quite extreme views, right? So, so Shia Islamist politics and and this charge of being uh, anti-state is coming about at a time when uh ISIS has just uh, uh briefly taken over a third of the country with with a call to, to of genocide against Shia and 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 has uh you know had just uh, engaged in in you know massacres including spiker uh so you know there and, and there was the the Kurdish independence referendum so we're we're in a we're in a context where um every major group is is going to various uh, lengths to uh, uh, to both undermine state authority and define themselves in a sort of maximalist way by their ethno sectarian uh, identity group and and I think in that context it becomes uh, it becomes clearer why. You see this as a problem, this kind of language, because even though the Shia are maybe first among equals in terms of government power, uh, they're still uh, uh, even you know as recently as uh, uh, 2017 or 2018 facing uh, violence at the hands of, of Takfiri sectarians who believe that 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 uh, that Shia uh, Iraqis uh, don't deserve to live.
1: And, and I would add to this that you know the. Putting to one side the competition between Shias and Sunnis and Kurds over power, the other thing that is really worrying is the growing polarization in society. And, you know, obviously, this is something that you you see with a lot of open societies around the world these days, this growing trend where, you know, the left and the right um, have stopped talking to each other. They're talking over each other. Um, they, you know, the extreme fringes on on both ends are dominating the the discourse. And I think this is the same in Iraq. There's this growing trend where, um, you know, um, you have people on both ends of the spectrum that are using rhetoric that is extremely divisive, that is extremely toxic, and it doesn't um, it it doesn't help move the discourse in the right direction. And and my concern, one of my main concerns in, in all of this is about Iraq's stability. I mean, Iraq is still a fragile country and, um, you know, while it is a sign of a healthy society that you have, you know, free and open debate and that, you know, you, if you turn on uh, the TV in Iraq, you can find uh, political views expressed in all di- different directions. But then when those views are dominated by the extremes on both sides, uh, this is something that needs needs to be addressed, and you know, for all of your listeners in in the U.S. and predominantly in the West, these are these are problems that I think we're all facing, um, and, and then how do you you know how do you moderate these sort of discussions and let the, the moderates you know um, have their say and try to to bring these various factions together, and in Iraq, I would say you know maybe the division is not between conservatives and liberals necessarily. Um, Maybe it's not between the left and the right, but there's certainly one of the sort of um, divisions is between people who subscribe to sort of a more of a Islamist or religious worldview and those who subscribe to a secular worldview. And that is completely fine in a a society like Iraq, where you have those different uh, positions. But then, you know, I think for me, it's about, well, how can we bridge the gap? How can we, we're never going to get everyone to agree and that's fine but you know how can we get the discourse to a level where it's constructive rather than destabilizing for the country
0: which leads us I think to one of the the interesting focuses of the the last section of your report where uh, you you move into an analysis of what is what is the actual uh, struggle over um, so uh, explain explain if you will, uh, You know, so you're saying that, you know, you're saying it isn't a question of being against the state or for the state. It's actually a struggle for control of, of the state and its power and resources. Uh, so tell us how you affirmatively characterize this discourse. And I think you uh, you cite the example of the Dawa party as an illustration of of, of a better way of understanding this tension over what what these uh, factions really are fighting over.
1: Yeah, so really, in my estimation, the the struggle is not between those who believe in the state and those who don't. The struggle is over the identity of the state. And by that, I mean, you can break down state identity into many sort of constituent parts. But, you know, one of them, for example, is the role of religion. I mean, it's a highly contentious issue. To what extent Should religion play a role in in politics or should it be something that people practice in their homes or in their mosques or or churches? That's a huge issue. Again, not exclusive to Iraq. Um, The other issue is to do with regional alliances. I mean, should Iraq um, strategically align itself with, with the East, primarily Iran and, say, China, Russia, or is it better off? aligning itself more closely with with the West. That's another hugely contentious issue. The other one is to do with the way that state power is configured. And there are lots of aspects of this. I mean, one of the big debates in Iraq that is just sort of ongoing all the time is, you know, is Iraq better off being a parliamentary system or a presidential system? How should, um, you know, the various security agencies operate? What kind of power should they have? There's a lot of contention, even within the Shia ruling elite, as to whether, um, you know, the... That The parties that have um, militias or armed wings, whether they should be involved in politics, whether they have the right to um, hold positions, particularly security positions, because, you know, for many, that seems like a way of undermining the state of authority. So all of these things, I would say, come under this broad rubric of state identity. And that's a, for me, that that is a much more constructive discussion to have between people from all walks of life. Is it, what exactly is your vision for Iraq? What is it that you want? Uh, Iraq to look like um, in, in the future for your children and for your grandchildren.
0: Another uh, element of this, which I wanted to to see to, to see what you thought of, is uh, in my in my estimation, every major faction in Iraq has uh, has worked to actively undermine central state authority. Right. They're they're you know cannibalize you know the sadrists cannibalize state bureaucracies in order to uh, enrich their coffers. Some of the uh, smaller you know militia centered groups are are eager to undermine state authority so that their weapons can't be uh, controlled by a central authority. Some of the bigger part, I mean you know Maliki famously while he was in power tried to. Uh, uh create as much centralized authority under his own power as he could and then once he was out of power became you know another entropic player uh helping keep keep the state fragmented and this goes for the for the major kurdish factions and the major uh, uh sunni players as well there there isn't any uh major player that i can think of who has actually Engaged in a state-building project, right? Who whose whose platform has been make the state stronger and make its institutions more autonomous and more and more viable. Uh, so, in that in that context, um, is there is there actually a sort of unanimity for a variety of different reasons in uh, the major political factions being comfortable with a fragmented state, a state that has. Uh, Uh, reduced capacity to govern, but also as a result, uh, reduced uh, uh, susceptibility to be taken over by another dictator.
1: Yeah, so I would say there is an argument to be made about the fact that, you know, most of Iraq's political elite would would like to see a, you know, a state that is, um, you know, fairly fragile, because it allows them, as you say, to, to cannibalize the state and to benefit from its weakness and you know numerous examples of this i mean we just have to talk about corruption you know the endemic corruption that exists in iraq that's a you know that's a feature of the fact that the state is weak and that the ruling elite are able to um you know to, to to use that um to benefit um on a personal level and and i would add that you know that the problem that Iraq faces is often we talk about this post-2003 political settlement, which for me is a bit of an oxymoron in Iraq because that, that never really was settled. Um, you know, yes, there is to some extent a power sharing agreement between Shia, Sunnis, Kurds and, and others, but the, the, the internal competition has persisted um, throughout the past 20 years. And it's never really settled because all of Iraq's political elite generally Think in very short-termist ways. It's all about survival. It's all about trying to, you know, undermine their rivals to to get a bigger share of um, control of power. That that they, you know, the 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 power sharing has not settled in a way where you people have just accepted this is the way that the country is going to be for the foreseeable future. And so that that rivalry, that competition, really continues to breed. Um, instability and fragility for for the country, and that's why you just don't see. I mean, it's very rare to see politicians thinking in a very long termist way, thinking beyond their personal interests, beyond their personal survival, and thinking more about you know Iraq as a, as as a country and what its national interests um, should be going forward.
0: Yeah, and I think your your analysis really helps deepen our understanding of of one of the major obstacles to the emergence of a non identity based. Nationalism, right? And, you know, uh, I certainly think an important alternative to the fragmentation underway uh, in Iraq would be the reemergence of, as there has been in the past, of uh, belief systems or political allegiances that do not uh, uh, depend solely on one's sectarian or ethnic identity group. Um, and I think it's a really toxic and pervasive part of the discourse that. Uh, Opponents of of one group or another essentialize uh, their rivals and say, you know, in this case, in the case you're you're um, analyzing, they say uh, these Shia Islamist factions are are you know fifth columnists, not part of the state, creating a vacuum. Uh, we hear similar things said about Kurds uh, by non-Kurds. We hear sometimes similar things said about Sunni Iraqis, um, and 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 frankly, sometimes. Uh, Sunni supporters of, of ISIS have said similar things themselves, right? So it's, it's a really uh, pervasive and problematic uh, way of talking and thinking that makes it just, it just makes it much harder to imagine uh, uh, the many millions of Iraqis who are interested in non-identity-based ways of organizing their politics uh, to, to find a way to actually translate that into, into meaningful uh, coalitions on the ground.
1: Yeah, and it seems like an obvious thing to say, but you know, people have different layers of identity as well. It's it's not either or. It's not that you're either nationalist or, um, you know, or you uh, align with your sectarian um, uh, component of your identity. I mean, you know, that's just it's natural for people to have different layers. And I think, uh, as you say, I mean, if we stop essentializing people, then it allows us to to understand what people's motivations are, and often people's motivations are multidimensional. Um, and, and, and so if you can go beyond the sort of the very basic rhetoric of, are you Iraqi first or are you Shia first or are you Sunni first, which is something that I sort of point out in, in the, in the piece, you know, you, you, you find, you know, polling conducted, um, either by, um, Iraqi civil society or even by DC based think tanks who are going around asking people, um, are you Iraqi or are you Shia? I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of absurd to think in those terms. I mean, if, if I'm walking around in London and, and someone stops me and asks me, am I British or am I Muslim, I'd be outraged. And I think most people would be outraged by a question like that. And so it's really, again, it goes back to, you know, this idea that let's just accept that everyone has, um, uh, everyone believes in a state called Iraq, by and large, you know. I mean, maybe the Kurds are a, a slight exception to the case, and that's fair enough in, in, their, in their case, maybe they have aspirations for, for independence. Well, they believe in, in a enough. state
0: called Iraq. They just might not want to be part of it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's fair enough from, from my perspective. But w- what I'm saying is if we're talking about, you know, Shia Arabs, Sunni Arabs, let's move beyond this, you know, um, suspicion that they're not interested in Iraq, they're interested in something else. And I, I would add just briefly that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Sayyid Amar Hakim um Uh, addressed the conference that he organized on sort of the the future of Shia in Iraq. And I thought it was interesting what he said, because it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about. And what he tried to put forward was this idea of uh, what he called the wataniya Shia, which kind of translates as Shia nationalism. And his sort of contention was that, yes, there is something called Shia identity, which goes beyond borders, right? And that is something that um, unites Shi'as on the basis of a uh, theology um uh, a way of um, maybe not a way of life but also you know in terms of um you know their approach to practicing religion in the same way that you know muslims are united in in, in that way but then he also added that actually shi'as um within their various constituent countries are different they have their own um, priorities, their own interests at hand, whether they're Iraqis or Iranians or Bahrainis or living in the West. And and so I think what he was trying to make the point was is essentially that it's, it's not either or. It's not that you have to choose between your Shia identity and your national identity. It's perfectly possible for the two to, to coexist.
0: Ali, thank you so much for your uh, research and, and writing on the subject and for your uh, your clear uh explanation of this important uh, subject. You are listening to Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast. I've been speaking with Alian Maulawi. You can read his report uh, that was part of our Shia politics uh, project that looks at the transformation of Shia Islamism in Iraq over the last 20 years. It's at the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. And the report is called, Iraqi Shia factions are supposedly anti-state, but state power is what they want. Ali, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.